Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. My name is Doug, and we are live on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, thinking through God's Word together. Glad to have you all with us this morning. Uh, I'd love to see all those good mornings. Good morning, Mark and Keith and Alan and Dale. Jenny, welcome. I don't think we've heard from you for a little while. And Paul, uh, glad you are with us as we start this new series today. Hope you're having a great day. This is a great day. It is Tuesday, year of our Lord Jesus Christ, April 5th. 2022, and this is a good day because Jesus made this day. Do you believe that? As you head into whatever awaits you on Tuesday or wherever you are in the world, maybe the day is half over or mostly over. Jesus Christ made this day, and therefore we can rejoice in it. Uh, Good evening, Tim. I think you're in the UK, and that would be evening for you, right? Glad you're with us. Okay, so today we're going to jump into a new series, uh, Romans chapters 9 through 11, and I expect this to be fun. I expect this to be challenging for all of us, just as the last series was, and uh, we're going to go slow enough that hopefully I can bring everybody along. Feel free to add your uh, your questions and comments along the way, uh, because... I really want us to get it. I want us to dig into the Word. I want us to see the Word as it's presented. Uh, So good morning, Mujo Picklin. I still love that name. I'm not even sure that's how you pronounce it. All right, so uh, if you are a pastor, teacher type, I know Mark is, and some of the rest of you probably are as well. If you've ever taught through Romans, um, when you get to chapter 9, if you're like I used to be, Uh, And like I know a lot of you are, because I I know you come from a similar background that I do theologically, we sort of look at chapters 9 through 11 as uh, through that systematic grid that we've been talking about, right? So you've got the justification um, section, maybe 1 through 4, and you've got sanctification 5 through 8, which hopefully now you don't divide Romans that way. If you've been with us, you won't. And then you get to chapter 9, and chapter 9 is this uh, God's sovereignty section, right? His predestination section. And then chapter 11, maybe we put in the realm of eschatology, uh, the future for Israel. And many people believe that Romans 11 teaches that at the end, right before Jesus comes back, there's going to be a mass conversion of Jews to Christ. And those in the dispensational camp believe that uh, there's tied in there with maybe Jesus' return and the rapture and all of that. And uh, uh, that's just not the way to look at it. <laughs> that is not how Romans is presented to us. It is not a systematic theology. I, I saw a tweet yesterday from a guy that uh, I've been following for a little while, and uh, he's a thoughtful man, and I appreciate much of what he has to say, but he he's arguing for how we must read the Bible theologically, and exegesis is not enough, and the historic grammatical interpretation of Scripture is not enough, that the best theology comes from sitting and pondering and reflecting deeply on theology. And uh, he is coming from a traditional Reformed viewpoint where, uh, and I, you know, I don't mean to pick on him, but I'm picking on myself because I used to be here. We, we developed this soundbite theology concept where we take something and we, we reflect on it, we ponder it, and we allow our minds to think through abstractly and logically and rationally to come to conclusions about the character of God, for instance, 
which takes us away from the Bible as it's presented. So let me give you a little test case here uh, as we jump into uh, Romans 9 through 11. If you were to look at verses, verse 23, I'll put it up here for you, Romans 9, 23. Here's what it says. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand, even us whom he called, not from Jews only, but also from Gentiles. Actually, I should go back one verse to verse 22. What if God although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And then he gets into the verse. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. If you read these two verses and your first thought is predestination, you're not reading the text. If you start debating supralapsarianism or infralapsarianism or sublapsarianism, you're not reading this text. If you start asking the question, is this God revealing a double predestination? You're not reading the text. Now, I'm curious. I'd love to see in the, in the comments here. How many of you know those terms? Uh Superlapsarian, infralapsarian, some of those, double predestination, and and do you have you seen read people tie these verses to those concepts? If you if you want to uh, just give me a quick yes or no, I'd be curious uh, to whether or not that's how you think of these verses. The first time I taught through the Book of Romans as a young seminary student, I'm reading the text and then going quickly to the commentaries and to the theology books. And Keith says over my head, yeah, good, good. You're in a better position than most than to, uh, to read this. Mujo says, I have not. Paul says, yes. Uh, Lon says, no. All right, good. So maybe I won't have to undo so many uh, presuppositions coming into this. Uh, through the uh, very, <laughs> Dale says, sadly, yes. Yeah, yeah. so I, I'm, I'm able to kind of put you guys in groups. Those of you who maybe have... Uh, I've spent more time in the realm of theology uh, than others. Mark says, I'm an old guy, and yes, I have. Yeah, so, you know, even through the series on uh, on the, the flesh and the spirit that we just finished up, I had people sending me comments and emails saying, hey, when are you going to publish your commentary on Romans? Or, or when, uh, you know, what's the best commentary on Romans? What would you recommend? And I think, okay, I understand that we, we don't want to be arrogant and think that we have all the answers. We don't. I don't have all the answers. But we've been trained in certain segments of the church, certain segments of theology. We've been trained to, to uphold certain men and their perspectives, especially if they are full-time theologians, and if they write a lot of books, and if their names are passed down over generations— we are taught to hold them up into high esteem, and we read those books, and there's this, uh, and they perpetuate it. The whole Reformed tradition perpetuates this. Don't think that you are just going to come uh, de novo, just out of the top of your head, you're going to come up with something that no one else has ever come up with. 
Have you heard that? Well, somebody did. <laughs> somebody was the first one to articulate it this way. Augustine is looked at as, you know, one of the great forefathers of the Reformed faith. Well, he was several centuries after Christ. He was the first one to articulate some of these things. And then for a thousand years, we had mostly Catholicism. And we don't appeal to a lot of theologians there. And then the Reformed guys, the you know Calvin and Zwingli and, and Luther and their disciples and those after them, the next generation, the, the Roman Catholic Church attacked Calvin and Luther because what they were teaching was new. And they said, no, no, we're just getting back to the Bible. But then their disciples follow on and say, if you don't follow with Calvin and Luther and those guys, you're just coming up with something new. See, it's just, okay, I'm sorry, get in my soapbox here. Read the Bible. That's my point. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. You shouldn't need commentaries. You know, the, the, I'm teaching an NCST class right now on, uh, on uh, Acts and 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And 1st Corinthians is, you know, in my Bible, it's what, three or four pages, depending on the size of your font, five pages. Here's the best commentary I know on 1 Corinthians. Look how thick this thing is. This is a massive book. And Moo's commentary on Romans, which is pretty good, it's this big. And Romans in your Bible is like five pages. Should it take a book this thick to understand a, a letter that's five pages in your Bible? Ah, I don't think so. Uh, good morning, Hugo. Mark says, dare we contradict Calvin? <laughs> yeah, who do you think you are? I haven't con contradicted him yet. But uh, we got to read the Bible. Read the Bible. I would, I would challenge all of you who are teachers and preachers that I would, I would challenge you to... And this is hard. I know it's going it, to, it, it takes some guts, but make the commentary the very last thing you look at and only look at it from the perspective of, I want to read what somebody else says to see if they bring up something that I've missed or something that contradicts what I have learned myself. And then you can wrestle with and say, okay, are they right? Are they persuasive or not? But we, we tend to do this, and especially today in pastoral ministry, there's so many other things than study that we have to do, that we, we read the passage, we get our commentary, and we basically regurgitate what the uh, commentators say. All right, uh, I'm supposed to be teaching on Romans, but I, I just, man, uh, the church is weak, and we have weak leaders for a variety of reasons, but one of the reasons is we don't actually know the scripture, we know our favorite theologians and so on. Dale says, never understood how posting on a door 500 years ago is better than posting on the internet today. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Okay, so if you look at Romans 9, to 24, and your first thought is predestination, you're not reading the Bible. So what, what are we getting here? So Romans 9 through 11 is Paul addressing a question that uh, all of his hearers would have had, and especially as he's unpacked Romans, we, we saw this in the, the Flesh and Spirit series, he is continually saying the law 
provoked sin in Israel and brought death and condemnation on them. He, he talked about a Jew being the one who's not marked in his flesh by circumcision, but the true Jew is the one who's marked in the spirit or marked in his heart by the spirit. He, he keeps interjecting things about the Jews throughout the book of Romans, and it, it begs the question or, or, or raises the question, well, what about the actual physical ethnic Jews? If we are sons of God who are being led by the Spirit, regardless of our ethnic background, what about the Jews? If you read the Old Testament, if you read the prophets especially, read Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and others, Hosea, read them all. Read those prophets. We see all of these promises that Israel is going to be restored to Jerusalem and all the nations are going to flock to Jerusalem. Mount Zion is going to be the highest hill, highest mountain in the land. And Israel, the Jews, are going to reign and rule, and all the promises of the covenant are going to be fulfilled. And it never happened. What do we make of that? That's a legitimate question to all of us today. What do we make of that? There are some, I've heard some very prominent theologians of our day say this, if there is no future for ethnic Israel and geopolitical Israel as a nation, then God is not a promise keeper. In fact, one very prominent theologian, whom you all know, you've all heard of him, said, if there's no future for, for national Israel, then God is not a promise keeper and you shouldn't trust him for the gospel either because if he doesn't keep his promises to Israel, you are a fool to trust him to keep his promises to you as a Christian. Those are, those are strong words, and I beg to differ vehemently with my brother there. Here's the crux of the matter, chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. He's been heading toward that conclusion through the whole letter of Romans thus far. Has God failed Israel? And the word of God here is not simply a synonym for the Bible. This is the promise of God, the promises of God to Israel. Has God failed to prosper them as he promised? Has he failed all of those statements going back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through Moses and ultimately through the prophets because the state of Israel in Paul's day was that the vast majority of the Jews had rejected the Messiah, right? They're clamoring for his crucifixion, crucify him, crucify him. Most of the Jews of, of Jesus's day and Paul's day rejected Christ. And not all, of course, but the vast majority does that mean God's promises have failed? They, they had the Messiah right there in front of them. They saw him raise people from the dead like Lazarus. They saw him perform all the miracles. And they didn't believe. They wanted his death, his crucifixion. What does that mean? Is God done with Israel? What do we do with all that? Now, today to, to prepare this, I want to make sure that in our own minds we understand the state of Israel in Paul's day. Because again, we read Romans 9 through 11 theologically. 
We read it from a systematic perspective. We read about it from our own day, but we need to get back in Paul's day to understand what he's saying. So I'm going to go back to, uh, to Jesus's words and set the stage for the question. So follow with me here, starting in Matthew 21. Excuse me. Water went down the wrong pipe. (coughs) So here's, it's in red letters, so you know that Jesus said it, (laughs) which I hope you know that there were no original (coughs) red letters. We can't always trust them, but this is truly Jesus speaking. So Jesus is is, uh, telling some parables to the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, and here's, here's what he says. Listen to another parable, he says. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it to the vine growers and went on a journey. So if you notice here in the NAS, these words are all in all caps. That is the New American Standards way to tell you that this is a quote from the Old Testament. This, uh, this vineyard wine press tower imagery is taken right from Isaiah. And these Jews would have all known this. God Uh, talked about Israel as his special vineyard and how he protected it. And he gave it everything possible that that it could need to bear good fruit. But it didn't bear good fruit. It bared bad fruit, and so God was going to destroy it. So as Jesus quotes this story of the vineyard, all of these Jews would have understand he's referring to Isaiah in the context of the Jews not bearing good fruit and God going to judge them. So he refers to that, and, uh, and then he's going to make it his own here. So the vine grower planted the vineyard and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. So this vine grower creates this nice vineyard. He goes away, but he sends his, uh, his slaves to go and now gather the fruit from the vineyard. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one killed another, and stoned a third. So again, you get the picture, right? The owner of the vineyard goes on a journey, sends his slaves, and those who were there to to take care of the vineyard killed one of the slaves, beat another one, and stoned a third. So the owner sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, the one who's going to inherit the vineyard. They said, come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So again, capture the setting. This is Jesus saying, let me tell you a story. There's a man who owned a vineyard. He left, sent his slaves Those who were taking care of the vineyard kept killing the slaves. Finally, the the owner sent his son, and those who were caring for the vineyard said, this is the guy who's going to inherit it. Let's kill him, and then the vineyard will be ours. Therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes. When he comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Well, these Jews, they got the message. They said, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. So they got it, right? If you kill the son of the owner, he's going to come and destroy those vine growers and then find some other vine growers. 
So imagine now that you are the Jews hearing this. What is Jesus saying? You Jews, you Pharisees, leaders, you priests, you are the vine growers. And God is, has sent his servants. This would be the prophets of old who, who kept warning them. And they killed them and persecuted them and beat them. And now Jesus himself is the son. And they are going to kill the son thinking they can take the inheritance. But by their own words, they get it. No, the owner of the vineyard, God, he's going to rip the vineyard away from the Jews and give it to others. See the story? Jesus said, did you never read in the scriptures? You teachers of the law, you Pharisees and scribes, you know this. You know the scriptures. Did you never read it? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. And is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus says, I'm the stone. You're the ones who are rejecting me. And I'm going to become the chief cornerstone. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, Jews. And given to a people producing the fruit of it. That's going to be the Gentiles. Jesus is telling them. God's going to rip the kingdom from you and give it to the Gentiles. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whom it falls, it will scatter him like dust. They got the message. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. So Jesus told them another story. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. That's the Jews. And they were unwilling to come. And he again sent out other slaves telling, saying, tell those who've been invited, the Jews, behold, I prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. And they went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. What city would this be referring to? Anyone? Are you tracking with me? Put in the comments here. What city? The king is enraged that they killed his son and his slaves, and he's going to send his armies and destroy those murderers and set their city on fire. Do you know what city he's talking about? While I'm waiting for your response, I'm going to go on here. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Yeah, Lon got it. This is Jerusalem. Yep, Paul got it too. The wedding is ready, but those who were invited are not worthy. That's the Jews. Jews weren't worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. So leave the city and go out into the highways and invite people in. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both good and evil. I got those backwards. Evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. So those who were invited, the Jews... 
They're not part of this. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man said, the man was speechless. The king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. So not everybody from the outside who is invited in, who's called in, not all of them were properly dressed. That's uh, not all Gentiles, uh, even if they are part of the church, uh, will make it because they weren't uh, dressed properly and, and so on. We'll, we'll discuss that for another time. The Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And through the rest of chapter 22, uh, they try to set Jesus up so that he'll trick himself and say something that will get him killed. Chapter 23, Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples and listened to this language of our Lord. The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. They love being called rabbi by men, but do not be called rabbi for one is your teacher. And he's talking about himself and he gives them some more instruction here. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, men, remember, this is, these are the leaders of the Jews of Jesus' day. Woe to you. That's a, a prophetic statement of a curse. Cursed be you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're just play acting because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. You do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering in. Listen to this, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel on sea and land to make one proselyte. You'll go across the whole world to bring one person uh, to Judaism. And when, you, when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are yourselves. These are the leaders of Israel. You're a son of hell, he says, and you make your converts sons of hell twice as much. Woe to you blind guides who say whoever swells by the temple, there's nothing, but whoever swells, swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. On and on and on he goes. He is just ruthless in his condemnation of these guys. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish. But inside you are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup of the di and the dish so that the outside of it may become clean. Listen to this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but on the inside they are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I'm obviously skipping around here because our time is fleeing. For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. We wouldn't have killed all those prophets that God sent. No, we would have been better. And they build these great monuments to them. Jesus says, so testify, you testify yourselves that you are sons of the prophets who murdered the prophets. How so? They're going to kill Jesus and they're going to kill his apostles that he sends. 
Fill up then the measure of your guilt of your fathers. Now, now catch these words. Jesus is telling the Jews of his day, especially the leaders, the guilt of your fathers, those who killed the prophets of old hundreds of years ago, fill up, right? Like, like this cup has been progressively growing full of wrath against the Jews. And he says now to his generation, fill it up so that it can be poured out on you. You serpents, serpents, snakes, you brood of vipers, you're the offspring of snakes. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them, some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. So that upon you, who's the you here? It's these Jewish leaders. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel, way back to Cain and Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Obviously, they weren't actually there with Abel or the Zechariah, but he's saying, upon you, upon this generation, God has been storing up his wrath to pour out on the nation of Israel for generations, for millennia. And by you killing the Son of God, the Messiah, and his servants, the apostles, and other, other men who Jesus sends, you are earning for yourself the wrath that God's been waiting for generations to pour out fully and finally. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all these things will come on this generation, the one he's talking to. God's been storing up this wrath. Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house, your household, your temple is being left to you desolate. I'm going to destroy your city. I'm going to destroy your household. I'm going to destroy your dynasty. The kingdom is going to be ripped away from you and you're going to be wiped out. For I say to you from now on, Jesus saying this in his day, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Your only hope, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to burn down your city. And I'm going to wipe you out. I'm going to bring the wrath of God for every, every blood, every ounce of blood that was spilled all the way back to Abel on this generation. And your only hope is if you acknowledge that I'm the Messiah. That's what this blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord means. It's a quote from the Psalms. And, and they, they did rightly ascribe this to Jesus when he's riding in on the donkey. 
They're singing this, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then a week later, they're clamoring, crucify him, crucify him. Your house is going to be wiped out. Your city is going to be destroyed. You Jews are suffering the wrath of God for generations. And that's how it's going to be unless you acknowledge that I'm the Messiah. Then notice Jesus came out from the temple. He said all this in the temple. He came out from the temple, was going away, and his disciples went up to point out the temple buildings. Looking around this great edifice, this great structure, and Jesus says, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. So Jesus is predicting the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the city, and God's ripping the kingdom away from Israel and giving it to others. With that in mind, consider again chapter 9, verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. You see the point? The kingdom's going to be taken away from you Jews and given to others. I've come not just for the flock of Israel. I have sheep of another fold. Go out into the highways and byways and invite everyone to the wedding feast because those who were invited are not worthy. What is God going to do to those who were invited who don't want to come? What, what about those who, who killed the son and all the slaves? God says, I'm going to burn down their city. I'm going to destroy them and give it to someone else. These vessels of wrath that God was patiently enduring here, he was willing to demonstrate his wrath. Those are the Jews going way back, all the way up to the generation of Jesus. And he never poured out his full and final destruction upon them until 70 AD. All of this provokes the question, Paul, what about Israel? Has God failed because he promised there's going to be all the nations streaming to Israel, all the blessings of Israel, the, the prosperity of Israel. Has the word of God failed? His answer is emphatically, no, it is not as though the promise of God or the word of God has failed. Well, what do you mean, Paul? Well, for that, you'll have to come back tomorrow. <laughs> Dale says, disciples, wow, look at the temple of Jesus, yes, but let me tell you about <laughs> Henry Kissinger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you don't know why that's funny, uh, you're missing out. That's, <laughs> that's a great line. All right, folks, our time has passed. Thanks for <laughs> sticking with me. I love that. Uh, come back tomorrow, and uh, and we will pick up uh, pick up there. P Tim says, "I see." So the Jews are like Pharaoh. The Jews are like Pharaoh. Hearts hardened. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. Yeah. Very good. So read the rest. Read 9, 9, 10, and 11 from a first century perspective, asking the question, is God done with the Jews? What do we make of all this? 
What do we make of them rejecting Jesus? Jesus' pronouncement of judgment upon them. God's pronouncement through the whole Old Covenant scriptures and the prophets of his judgment upon them. And, and what does this mean? And see if some things start to become clear and we'll, we'll continue to walk through it. Have a great day. Rejoice in the Lord. It's a good day because Jesus made this day. We will continue there tomorrow. Take care.